Welcome to the Pencils and Lipstick Podcast, a weekly podcast for writers. Grab a cup of coffee, perhaps some paper and pen, and enjoy an interview with an author, a chat with a writing tool creator, perhaps a conversation with an editor or other publishing expert, as well as Kat's thoughts on writing and her own creative journey. You'll laugh, you'll cry, well, hopefully not actually cry, but you will probably learn something. And I hope you'll be inspired to write because as I always say, you have a story, you should write it down. This is Pencils and Lipstick. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the 118th episode of the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. Today, it is February 10th as I record this intro. The sun is shining and I have managed two fires of tech issues today and somehow made them go out, although I couldn't really tell you what I did to make them go out. And as those fires went out, five others started in a different area. So yay. (laughs) Feels like a Monday and it's not, it's a Thursday. I think this always happens every single time I'm about to leave town when like 500 things happen and you think, well, why didn't I fix this two days ago? But the truth is I didn't see it two days ago. So Anyway, we're going to put all tech and website issues aside for the moment. I haven't lost any words this week, so that's a win, right? (laughs) I have Ed James with me today. He is a crime author, a police procedural author, and we kind of talk a little bit about what the difference between those and thrillers are. I was especially interested in what he had to say about writing police procedurals, you know, how he got into it, the things that he's learned throughout the years of having over 30 books written and published, you know, why he chose indie publishing. And so we go into all of those things. I'm really curious about mystery writers and crime writers. I think because I find it like if they're written really well, it just captivates you. And I say that as somebody who doesn't really read a whole lot of thriller or crime or anything like that, but I had just finished a book set in my husband's hometown, and I think I would consider it a thriller, but it definitely has to do with crime, you know, with murder, maybe even like horror would be the proper word. My favorite thriller slash crime is Child 44. I think that's an amazing book. And it was probably the first of its kind that I had read, but to like delve into the mind of these characters as a writer, I find fascinating that, that writers can do that and that they can keep the reader on their toes without having like these gotcha moments, you know, the best thriller, like the best well-written thriller or crime story or movie you know, sort of brings the reader along and has them thinking that they figured it out almost, except that they didn't, (laughs) you know, like they're still surprised by it, but it makes sense enough that they think, oh, well, yeah, you know, once they've seen it, but if you step back and think about it, like this happened to me with Knives Out. This is how I I came up with this scenario, I guess. I, I got off the plane coming in from Qatar 
with our group when we went to Nepal and I told them I had watched Knives Out and one of my friends in the group said, oh, did you figure it out? Like, did you like it? And did you figure it out? And I was like, oh yeah, I knew. And then I started, he was really, and I started going through all of the scenarios of like this, this. And then <laughs> after about five minutes of talking, I said, you know what? I actually didn't figure it out, but I felt like I had, you know, except that I hadn't. So that's interesting. You know, but I, I then thought about that with regards to reading thrillers and mysteries and crime. And it's interesting because I talk about this with Ed James about how not every police procedural or thriller follows the same path. You know, sometimes you have the villain's point of view. Sometimes you know exactly, you know, who the villain is. Sometimes you don't. Sometimes it's a full mystery. Sometimes it's just wondering if the villain's going to get away with it. And if he does or she does, how do they get away with it without it being kind of cliche? And, you know, we're putting these, that being like the best way to write it. So they fascinate me, quite frankly, because I don't consider myself smart enough to know how to write that. (laughs) That's probably why. But in regards to every other writing, you know, we still have to, even if it's not a mystery, put these sort of Easter eggs into our stories. And I've been reading Wired for Story by Lisa Crone. That's C-R-O-N. And she talks quite a bit about this idea of like, don't put anything in the story that isn't really going to tie back to the story. And I think that the good thriller and crime and mystery writers really understand this. And Ed and I talk about this. And what I think happens with literary writers and women's fiction writers possibly even sort of romance writers is sometimes we want to add certain details or certain little quirks or, you know, well, let me think if I can think of a idea. Like the other day I deleted an entire page because I went down the track of, of my main character waking up with a hangover. And I sort of went down this path of comparing him and his twin brother and how they react to alcohol. So I had a whole page, a single space on how his twin brother was very good at holding his alcohol and, and my main character was not, and sort of why that might be, you know, speculating it with his parents and how his parents handle alcohol. And in this story, his parents struggle with substance abuse. And, and then after reading it, I thought, you know, if I have this whole page here, I'm going to have to tie it back to it coming in somehow to, to the story, to the ending, like, otherwise, what's the point of having it here? You know, what does alcohol have to do with his desperate search to get back into the music industry? And I really sat back and thought about it. And I ended up deleting it because I couldn't find a good enough way to really bring it back to the story. And I wasn't so sure that I wanted alcohol in itself, in and of itself to really be part of his story. And so that was the first time that I really consciously went and thought this needs to go because it's going to sort of lead down this 
a little stone path into a garden that's, you know, blocked off. <laughs> There's no more garden here. So the reader's sort of going to get a detour and then they're going to come back on. And it's not a good detour. The reader that's really always looking for what is going on in the story and likes to think about the story as they go, they're going to be a bit confused about this detour into alcoholism, or they're going to assume every single time he picks up a drink or there's alcohol around that there's going to be a tie back into that mini story about his parents over drinking and, and my main character drinking vodka at 14. So I made the conscious effort. I didn't even, didn't even save it as a clip. I just completely deleted it. And that's also an example of how sometimes you have to delete things Even if it's not because they're poorly written, it's just not part of the story. Now, you don't have to completely delete it. You could paste it. And believe me, I have lots and lots and lots of documents under my clip folder. (laughs) Clip from this one, clip from that one. Everything I deleted or took out of the story. But as I go through this fourth novel, I'm trying to be more conscious about where I'm taking the main character. And I thought about it today. And when I started writing again, and once I deleted that scene and I just went into something completely different, I went really into his relationship with his girlfriend. It was actually a lot easier to write, which is a good sign. You know, it's like, yes, this is actually where the story should be going. It flowed really easily. So, you know, of course I could have kicked myself for having wasted time writing a page that I didn't need. But this is really, you know, I'm trying to be more conscious of what I'm doing with the main character, with the story, where the story is going. I've thought a lot actually about what I want to do in the story. And thankfully I have the creative writing community in which I could bounce some ideas off of and ended up deciding that, no, I could not kill off all the characters (laughs) because I was really tempted to. So that's a good thing. We don't need to kill off all the characters. It's not even a thriller or a crime book. But I did find a new podcast. I'll have it in the show notes. Actually, at the moment, I can't even remember what it was what it was called. I'll have it in the show notes. But they were talking about organic writing. And the person that they had on, I think they, they use organic writing as in place of pantser, you know, the person who does an outline, who just sort of sits back and lets the story flow out of them. And as you know, if you've been listening to the podcast for the last six months, I'm trying to have some sort of outline or something. (laughs) And I don't really have an outline, but I am sort of writing questions before I sit down to a scene and trying to answer those questions. So full-blown honesty here, sometimes I write those questions out and then the scene comes out and they have nothing to do with those questions. (laughs) So I have to then go back and look through the scene and ask different questions and then answer them in a different way. Sometimes I do like a reverse outline. There you go. I write and then I outline it. It's a struggle for me and I'm not sure that I'll ever really become an outliner or plotter as people like to call them. But this author was talking about how she has come to the conclusion that organic writing is just as real and just as valid as plotting, which seems a bit silly. Of course, it's just as valid, but it is true. If you are in the writing industry, a lot of people sort of poo-poo the organic writers because 
Well, they just think that their way is better, I would say. And I do believe if you can figure out how to plot, most likely you are a faster writer. And if you can plot, you most likely have fewer rounds of editing. That is sort of my theory. Now, I have not yet tested this out on myself. That is why I'm trying to be a little more conscious with this novel and sort of plot it out at least a little bit before each scene and see where that takes me and if I enjoy it. Because I'm struggling with this new format, I don't feel like I'm going a whole lot faster. I am getting words on the page, mostly due to being with the sprints in the community because I sit down. I host five of them a week and so I'm in the chair and I'm there. And I might as well write, even if I end up deleting it. <laughs> so, you know, things are working out more or less with the with the story. But I just wanted to sort of give you guys an update. And if you are an organic writer, just take that note of it's okay. It is okay. We can welcome new ways of trying to write, but we can also embrace the way that we've always written. And it's okay if you are completely organic, don't want to try anything new. And it's okay if you want to try something new. I don't know. Maybe the plotter should try to, you know, write organically one day. (laughs) It would be a challenge. Before I get into the interview, I would like to encourage you guys to head on over to patreon.com forward slash pencils underscore lipstick. If you want to support the show, I am looking for getting into sponsorship this year. If you are on some platforms in which there are ads, that is not going to me. There are platforms now putting ads into podcasts. I do not have any ads on the show from me. <laughs> so those, all those ads are going to Spotify or whoever else it is. So if you want to support the show, I want to make sure that my editor, well, she'll always get paid, but you know that I'll get coffee because <laughs> basically because I pay her first. If you want to make sure that the show keeps going and you just want to show your appreciation for what I bring, you can do it there. That link is always in the show notes. If you want to sign up for my writer's newsletter or my reader's newsletter, those links are always in the show notes. I now have the pencilsandlipstick.com websites up and the transcripts are now in the show notes as well. If you prefer to read them or know somebody who prefers to read them, please share and like, and subscribe to the podcast, share it with anybody that you think would enjoy it, like, and subscribe and review it. Always reviews. If you really enjoy it, even if you don't enjoy it, if you really want to, you know, break my heart, go ahead and review it, (laughs) give it a one star. (laughs) But After that little plug for you to love on the podcast a little bit, I want to introduce you to Ed James, crime author extraordinaire. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Pencils and Lipstick podcast. I'm Kat Caldwell, and today I have with me crime author Ed James, who, by the way, has a great Scottish accent. (laughs) Hello, Ed. How are you doing? I am good. Uh, some people might find my accent dull and flat like me, but uh, thank you for the compliment. <laughs> well, you know Americans. Americans are crazy over accents, and we think everyone with an accent sounds smarter. So. Yeah, you guys, you guys don't have accents. You're all no. the same voice. <laughs> We're neutral, you know. That's, 
<laughs> I have so I've written books set in um, in America and did one of the things I do as part of my process is I read out the book and it's just having to do a lot of American accents. So <laughs> just trying to make sure the voice in was right. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. My kids and I try to do accents and we find the Australian accent almost impossible. Like we can't we can't get it at all. And the Scottish accent is is not very easy. Because I always <laughs> just I default into the Irish, you know. Yeah. Since I lived there for a year, and I was like, I know that that's not right. There's more of a like a guttural burr or something in the <laughs> Scottish. I'm not sure what it is. <laughs> yeah, there's lots of different accents in Scotland. Like where I where I grew up, there's like ten the big town ten miles down the road sounds nothing like how I speak. And Isn't that so funny? It's, it's absurd. Yeah, I think the one of the greatest things on Twitter. I don't know if it's still there. Is the Scottish Twitter? Have you ever gotten on that? Where they just <laughs> As an American, you need subtitles. <laughs> you have no idea what they're talking. You guys have different words. Yeah. Like, well, we there's... have no idea what you're saying. Like when? Isn't that is that for children or child? Or uh, Wayne. Yeah. Wayne. It, it means we we in, we won. Okay. So, yeah. That that's that's a West Coast of Scotland thing. And on the East Coast it'd be a bairn. Which is oh um like some sort of Norse Scandinavian Viking thing, yeah. But so a, within a few kilometers, it changes. Oh yeah, yeah, completely. That's what I'm saying. Like, so the, if you look at like Dundee and Aberdeen, which is about, the, I grew up between them, the, the accents are so different. And Glasgow and Edinburgh are really different. It's it's crazy. Yeah. Oh <laughs> so my <rich>. gosh. <laughs> oh my gosh. So so first question: As mm-hmm. a crime author, when you're writing the dialogue with people, do you specifically like? use words depending on where they're from to make sure that the reader knows no i mean one of the things i tried to do actually the first book i wrote um ghost in the machine which is the first scott cullen book came out it'd be 10 years ago in april and the first sort of draft of that had a lot of scottish idioms and so on and what i was finding was getting reviews from people and Wolverhampton or Wisconsin who didn't have a clue what I was talking about so I <laughs> planned it all out and but keeping it sort of really still understandable still reasonably realistic that it's a Scottish voice in there but mm. if you read I don't know if you've heard of an author called Irvin Welsh she did he wrote Trainspotting which was a massive film in the 90s yeah about sort of drug abuse in Edinburgh that if if you look at that, it's like it's impossible to penetrate at the start because it's all written phonetically. Yeah, so like, so there's phrases in there like we're talking about like distant things are. There's like one of the characters goes on a bit. It's a, it's a word spell L I K E S A Y, right? So you go like state, and it's like what on earth does that mean? And it's a sort of say the, the light uh, like sort of, and it's like like say this. Like, so I'm aware I'm, I'm using saying sort of quite a lot as I do this as a sort of a, a thing, but it's like a, right. it's a crutch this guy used to say like say this. So like say hearts or like say hems, which are the two football teams. So there's like and then it's all phonetically spelled. Massive seller, huge film at the back of it. But yeah, I try to you know keep it a lot more understandable to non yeah. I do remember train spotting that. I don't think I actually finished the book because of that. And I did yeah. subtitles for the, for the film. <laughs> I watched it several times and I, I, I did mean subtitles for it. As a, it was a it was very, it was a cultural eye opener, we'll say, <laughs> yeah. how different it was. So I've heard of other people, they sort of, as you say, flatten it out for the sort of American audience, I guess, to make sure that. Even though if it's set overseas, 
you won't get the frustrated American reader, which is, I honestly, I find it a little frustrating myself that American readers don't understand that there are other places that (laughs) speak differently (laughs) and that they would dare to like write a review about it. (laughs) But, but do you find that frustrating at all? Or is it just, it's sort of part of the writing process now? I think now it's part of the writing process. It used to be one of those things that would be annoying, but it's, you can't, I don't know, you just, I used to get like really sort of hurt and affected by one star reviews, for instance, and now it's just, oh, there's another one there, whatever, you know, but it's, it's about finding your people, I suppose, that you are going to like really annoy people with what you do because you're, you're staking a claim when you write something, you're expressing opinions or whatever. They're hidden by characters and so on. So you're going to infuriate people. They might not get that that character is supposed to be a monster and is acting that way and swearing all the time because he's a monster and they're supposed to have that revulsion. And they just, you know, it's up to them. If they don't want to read it, that's fine. It's, it's annoying when they uh, do a one-star review, but, you know, that's all part and parcel of it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, but it is, you, you will find your audience when you write the, the books and it's the strange things you just don't, I just didn't expect. So there's, a, there's one of the characters in the, the first books I wrote, which is very sweary, shall we say, and, and used a lot of effing and jeffing. And that was based on people I worked with. So there's mm. a, a guy who every second word, I'm not kidding. In fact, two people who every second word they used was the F word. And just constantly, and it is a thing in Scotland where it's just a form of punctuation, or more like breathing, you know. <laughs> It's just it just comes out and it's like F S F S F that you know and it's it's not an aggressive thing it's just that's the that's just what happens but you know a lot of the reviews people hate it uh, and there's strange things I've noticed in American reviews where like it doesn't matter how much uh, brutal crime you put on the page rape murder assault whatever if you <laughs> blaspheme they just do not like that at all you know it's so puritanical and you know i think we're largely an atheistic culture over here especially in scotland i think much more than england which has a lot more schooling that's uh, by churches and so on but in america it's you know so many things like i had had some strange emails from people about why i was taking the lord's name in vain and all this and it's this is how people speak you know yeah people say jesus christ is an exclamation of surprise and uh yeah yeah <laughs> it, you do about that. <laughs> it is funny our our roots i talk about this with people a lot who haven't been overseas it's like there's so many strands that have stayed you know on the american culture but you can see it like it is the religious people who left England who (laughs) came over here you know so we have like this background and there's always a conversation with the American writers of how much swearing you're allowed to put in there it's like it's a really big question on on, uh, that people debate and it's like okay well people talk like that yeah but then the reader gets tired of it it's it's just funny it's one of those things where they want reality except for in that they want their reality maybe yeah. Maybe, maybe, <laughs> except that, yeah, like I know people who say it constantly, you know, or that, yeah, they talk like that. Or when you have an exclamation, when you're working with ink and like you need them to understand really kind of what's going on, people say certain words, <laughs> you know, there's no other way to go. And you don't want a 45 year old detective being like, gosh, darn it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, <laughs> like that wouldn't be realistic, but oh my gosh. So how did you get into 
to writing crime? You say you're in your 10th year as a writer. So what, what got you into it? Um, so I used to be trying to be a musician. So about, you know, 20 years ago, I was in bands and, you know, like as you, as you do when you're young and daft, um, <laughs> trying to, trying to get a record deal, play gigs, all that kind of stuff. Right. Got close a couple of times, but never really serious. And then, you know, just, or just remember, like, I can't do music anymore. And still, but I still want to do something creative. And there's someone I worked with who was writing. And I used to read a lot of books. It wasn't, it's not, there's a lot of um, authors you might speak to who this has been their vacation since they were five or whatever. And they've right. written all the time. And I used to sort of dabble a bit, but it's never been something that was like my sort of absolute dream. But I did love reading books, crime books, especially like mainly like Ian Rankin or, Mark Billingham or Stuart McBride, who are some big British police procedural writers. And, you know, that I, I'd written a couple of books. One was about a guy in a band, and it was just like a couple of years, and it was kind of more, maybe a bit more, maybe sort of literary, someone like Ian Banks or Ian McEwen, something like that. It, but it didn't really work. I sent it out, got no interest from any agents. And then I'd written something else which was a bit crimey, but it wasn't very good. Um, so then I just hit upon this, right? I'm reading a police procedure and I was like, right, there's loads of these. I'll just write one myself. They can do it. I can do it. So I did it. And that, it took me about three years to to get it written. It was about three months to write a first draft and then send it off to literary agents to try and get representation as it was. And then rejection revision from some people who are interested in the rejection they just sat with it for about 15 months while my day job got very busy and then around about 2011 that was when the those kindle started taking off big time in britain i think it'd been around a bit a couple of years before that in america and you had guys like john locke Amanda Hawking, who were starting to make quite a bit of money from just uploading books they had sitting around, really, uh, charging right. 99p, and then millions of people were buying them. So it was just like, right, well, if the publishers don't want it, I'll do it myself. And that was the KDP revolution. So I just uploaded the book. Edit, well, I edited it. Actually, my dad edited it for me. He edited it. I published it. And um, it just... That was that was my journey, just writing a book, wow. having an idea. It was quite a tech, technology-driven thing. I was fascinated by it. So it was a cop story similar to what Michael Conley or Ed McBain would write, but it was a bit more technologically focused about serial killer using a social network at the time, which was quite cutting oh, edge. <laughs> now yeah. it's, um, it's destroyed the world. So yes. yeah, I was right. <laughs> you were right. Yeah, I was right. <laughs> Did you have a an idea that you were going to write series at that point? Like, did you really know where things might go if it got picked up? I think I think I knew I wanted to write a series. Yeah, and no, that was that was like the the big commercial thing is that there was lots of I think you know it's what when things seem to get popular, the you know like it comes out of nowhere and then they sort of aggregate around it. So the the sort of British police procedural stuff. It was kind of there was a lot of authors like P.D. James and so on from the in the eighties and seventies that were always on television when I was growing up. And mm-hmm. there was a big Scottish show called Taggart, which was allegedly a sort of ripoff of a book called Laidlaw by William McIlvanny, which is a police book set in Glasgow. And Ian Rankin he wrote Rebus 
book, the first one, Knots and Crosses, and he was inspired by that. It wasn't not very similar books. And then he wrote a series, and it was about the eighth book that took off, and around about the same time, Val McDermott, um, her books took off around that time as well. So these are two Scottish writers who were from sort of very working class backgrounds in a part of Scotland called Fife, which is between Edinburgh and Dundee, quite a an industrial bit, but also mm. quite rural. There's there's um, a world class golf course there, but also some really you know poverty stricken places. Mm-hmm. Um, but they took off, and then people started. They were selling like lots and lots of books, and people sort of aggregated around that and started doing similar books get they were getting big deals like Stuart McBride, Mark Billingham, to name a couple. Um and it, so there's that was the sort of thing, well, it works for them. So that's quite a good model to to take on. And and actually one of the things about a series is that you you know the readers love the the companionship. I think it's similar to have you you know about this and it's like something like there's some t- para para there's some parasocial phenomenon. So like like you were friendly with someone, but it's one way. So, like people who listen to your podcast, for instance, mm. would be would would associate with you because you're the consistent right. part of this. Um, so, I think it's, there's a similar effect going on with um, with people who read books that they associate with the characters. So, the that character of John Rebus or whatever in in Rankin's books, they associate with him and they like that. Same with any any long running series so that it's actually a lot easier to to pick it up yourself just go right so where's that character now six months later a year later and a different crime and you know that was the the sort of appeal for that that it it felt like i could just build up a series over a period of time and just keep it going where where it was going to end up i had no idea you had no idea yeah i know some people build up a sort of a blueprint of where the uh, the series is going to go over a period of time, but um, no, <laughs> it was uh, just one book at a time. With them. Yeah. yeah, well, there's there's an interesting thing with like the maybe the older series, or maybe some people still do it, where like you know how James Bond never ages, mm-hmm. and he never really he never really recalls back to a whole lot of things that go on. But these days, it seems like a lot of the series are really they they're on a time frame. So is is that what is expected from readers? Like that your books will call back to like the first or second or that your main character grows or ages? Or do you sort of like, yeah? yeah? I think, I think they, um, yeah, you're right. I think this sort of the old, I suppose it's going back to sort of people like um, Agatha Christie. Yeah. (laughs) You know, or like something as simple as like Murder, She Wrote or whatever. There's no continuity per book really it's just the same character turning up to solve a mystery and you know the you know the format the story would be different whereas now i think people probably because like long-running tv shows where it's not just a case of the week it's much more of a, a serialized thing or that there's actually character growth over you know like something like the x-files or the csi various franchises yeah you know they 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 change things like er probably upended the nypd blue they you know the characters go through growth and you kind of you can easily sort of pick it up if you miss like three or four episodes right but you but yeah, actually if you, you're rewarded for that so i think the i, I do think there's that people really want to see that character growth character development and be really rooting for the character and i think one of the things to focus on i suppose is the character flaw so there's a lot of some books where the characters are kind of like Superman, but I think people want Batman instead. So yeah. 
they want to see the flaw. They don't want, you know, the, the, I think if someone can do anything, then there's very little dramatic tension. But with, I think with, why Batman's so popular and persistent is that he's got the darkness, is, you know, the, the murder of his parents and the drive to solve crime and all that kind of stuff. So it's like, it's always like harking back to the dark bits of his personality. And I think that sort of thing really works with with the series but you know on the flip side i think you can go way too far down the other side where someone picks up book eight then they have absolutely no idea because there's 20 characters in the first <laughs> the first chapter who you've spent you know eight books introducing and you know like like i keep mentioning ian rankin but he um it was his eighth book in the series that was the one that became big but it was a real sort of high concept serial killers thing about um, a real life serial killer in Glasgow in the sixties, coming back in the nineties, uh, there was a copycat, and you know, or was there, and all that kind of stuff. So that was that caught the attention, that developed it. But then, what happened was the big success of that eighth book meant people went back and read the first seven, uh, and then uh, kept to reading. find out. So there's it's there's a sort of an, a happy medium of making sure there's you can get readers, the readers can pick up the the latest book. And not be too thrown by it, but then, you know, also going going back, to, you know, the, the, anyone who goes from the start, which really want them to go, that you know they've got they've got they're getting rewarded for. Um, yeah, they're not like rereading because mm. I know like the old time YA from the eighties, they would constantly reintroduce the characters over and over again. You know, like <laughs> the Hardy Boys, and I mean that's even older, but yeah. trying to think of examples. I'm a girl, so the Babysitters Club would be <laughs> what I <read. laughs> um, I can't think of a boys series from then, but you know, it was you can't do that as adult books. You can't constantly be writing three pages every single book about mm-hmm. where this character comes from. So, how did you figure all of that out? Of like, what details you have to have in a in a series? Did you just sort of know this intuitively because it's what you read? Or is this sort of something that you learned along the way when another book was expected? <laughs> so I think part of it, yeah, you get a lot from reading the, the genre. And if you want to write in the genre, you really have to kind of know it, I mm. think. So, like, I couldn't write a romance novel, not because I'm not a particularly romantic person or anything, but because I don't, you don't know the tropes. Where, yeah. yeah. Like, the tro- if you if you read, you know, there's people who read 20 romance novels a week or whatever, yes. and you get the... <laughs> the um all the tropes but like you know if you're writing in that genre or in any genre you want to fully understand it and be able to play with those tropes as well mm-hmm. so that what they expect they might not quite get but you're pushing it and you're and you're, you're shaping it so that it's your own book your own voice that's coming across um so yeah you, you really have to to know what you're writing about and i can't remember the question <laughs> did you so I guess you got your your first book up on Kindle, probably um, the KD oh, yeah. or whatever it was, and then you have to write another one, right? Yeah, I mean, that so was the whole plan, right? Yeah. But- um, so the, I think that, well, there was about mistakes and learning and all that kind of stuff, and I think it just I basically just I made a lot of mistakes, and the great thing about Amazon, I think particularly, is the reviews and seeing those brutal reviews. It's like. It's annoying as hell, you know, things <laughs> you just don't like. But sometimes if someone, you know, so you get like, you know, reviews, one star boring and it's like, right, well, there's nothing I can really do about that. But if someone right. takes the time to craft a really thoughtful critique of your book, that's actually really good uh, information that you can 
just go over do they actually have a point um if, mm-hmm. you know you know sometimes some of the early stuff is like there's too many characters and they're right there are far too many characters in um and introduced in a sort of haphazard way and it's like learning okay so you're picking up like from writing craft books that you know i think the the police procedural book it's it's not so much there's there's like a lot of a lot of characters so it's like it's all about red herrings and going through and speaking to people so you've got to have a reasonably dense cast and also because of the police involvement it's like you have to have certain types of police officers involved so there's like mm-hmm. a core detective team they'll have a boss who's a, a bully and you know a, a young sidekick and there'll be someone else who's a bit of an heirs as we'd say and you'd have um and then you'd be you'd like functional things so there'd be someone who's like a, you know the pathologist or um looks at the dead body and declares death and says this is what they when they died and all that kind of stuff and you'd have crime scene investigators who are analyzing the dna and all, all that sort of stuff and maybe you have forensic comms people so looking at people's phones and phone records and that's it just starts you stacking up all these people that's not even going into like the victim their family (laughs) the killer and all that stuff so you have so many characters and it's about you i just learned about you know introduce one character per chapter maximum really if i can okay just so people get they can differentiate that character from oh yeah because that's the one who always smokes and he came in and he was at the crime scene and he was told off for smoking or or something like that you know just so that there's something distinguishable about that character but also they've not been introduced it with another five people who've all got similar names um yeah. <laughs> out of place so yeah that that makes sense and you just like did you go back and rewrite the first book or did you just sort of like move on from there yeah i've edited it about three or four times over the first few years um just i think one of the things i think my agent alan guthrie who's uh who's like a big he was a big name author and over here anyway in the 90s not 90s 2000s um he's an agent now an editor he says that if you look at um if you can look back at your own your old material and be sat, still be satisfied with it, then you've stagnated as a writer. So there's there's something in that thing, but there's also a flip side where I could just sit and edit and edit and edit <laughs> and edit my whole material. So like Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin, all he seems to have done since Led Zeppelin is remaster Led Zeppelin's albums. <laughs> so there's a new and he set remasters every three or four years. Um, so <laughs> you can keep doing that, and you're not going. It's not going to actually make the book sell anymore. But True. there's a, there's a, there's a certain point where, if it's the start of the book, the series, the series mm. is only as good as that first. Or is, is only is maximized by that first book. So you want people to. To read that first book, love it, and then want to read more and more and more and more. That is that's that's true. So there there might be a little bit of difference between when you leave a standalone versus when you leave the start of a series, mm-hmm. right? What was the first series? The Cullen series? Yeah, Scott Cullen. Was your first one? Yeah. How do you know when you're done with a series? Like, will you ever completely move on? So I think I pretty much have finished that 14 books plus three in. Because, Wait, why do you say 14 plus 3? Well, this is the thing. With, I've, I've got myself into such a, a mess of continuity. It's worse than the Marvel films. You know, it's uh, I've got... Um, so the, the Colin series, there's eight books. There's three... The three comes from the Craig Hunter books, which are sort of... I wrote around the time of about the seventh or eighth. So there's like... But Colin's in those as a, more of an antagonistic figure. So they're kind of in heavy continuity with them. Um, 
And then after that, I wrote six shorter novellas over the well, not novellas, the more well, some are novellas and some are short novels over the sort of pandemic, um, okay. bringing the story up to speed. And that's the Colin and Bain one. So it's Colin and his old boss, uh, who was in the first book, um, at each other's throats doing various things against the backdrop of COVID-19. Oh, so you did bring in the <laughs> pandemic to your yeah, series. Yeah, so the third one, Hell's Kitchen, Bain was in New York uh, recording a podcast when he shouldn't have been uh, even out of the country, and that was when the lockdown kicked in. So he was stuck there and how he gets home. So it was, uh, you know, so really just focusing on basing it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was quite a tough. It was quite tough to write about, but also quite cathartic. And I think it put maybe quite a few people off. But you know, those books will be cat the catch of the moment. And in ten years' time, right. people will look back and go, "God, do you remember with lockdown?" Hopefully, fingers crossed, we don't have to do it ever again. So your series is really like you were almost stuck in that you had to either decide to pretend the pandemic never happened or really just put it in there. Cause you had like, it was per year. You already, the readers knew what year it was supposed to be. Uh, yeah. So I do, I do t- I try to avoid putting an explicit date in, but they're usually sort of reasonably contemporary. Yeah. With what's going on. So yeah. <laughs> that's, <laughs> so that's tough. That is tough. So the, the last other couple of series, the Vicky Dodds one and Simon Fenchurch, I've, written them so that they kind of go up to the start of the the pandemic so it's like probably february uh, 2020 so it's like there's sort of ripples of it but i'm just not sure i can write any more books set during lockdown so yeah. <laughs> yeah. so yeah there'll be when when, it, when i continue in those, in those series they'll be in in periods in the summer where it's all opened up again and things are a bit more normal and right you know you have to wear masks in shop or whatever but you know that's it's not like that you haven't you're stuck at home or whatever so on one hand, it might be kind of fun, though, to have like all the different voices that were popping up during the pandemic and to give voice to all of them. And they, they could argue about other things like, are we really arresting this guy because he doesn't have a mask over his nose? Like, yes. <laughs> well, I did have a bit where there was a couple, a couple of guys uh, were setting fire to a 5G mask that had just been installed. And then, you know, they're obviously wild conspiracy guys and stuff um, of course those are almost the most fun to write <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah if someone's got a, a that's the thing if someone's got a really strong worldview that might be completely wrong but in their head it's it's completely right that's a really sort of a really fascinating character to write about because there's no there's no good talking there's no explaining to people this is wrong because everything about if you're a conspiracy believer and everyone i suppose that commits a crime is believes their own conspiracy it's why they do it there's they've got their own sort of twisted logic and they they won't be part of the their logic is that anyone who dissuades them is not is not on their side so yeah (laughs) what's really scary is that how crime authors can write that character in a way that as a reader you're like well that kind of makes sense (laughs) (laughs) you're like wait a minute i don't want to be like this person you know they if you can really bring in their worldview in a way that you're like, well, I mean, I can kind of understand that (laughs) because then of course they're seeing all of the, you know, the happenings in the world from their point of view, I think. So who do you like writing the most? Do you like writing the villains or the. Well, that's the thing. So I think you want, you want to talk about um, number of people you can write about in a book. So points of view characters and so on. So 
the there's been very I've written very very few books that have more than one point of view. Oh, okay. When they, when they do, it would be like sort of dual protagonists, if that makes sense. So like that Colin and Bain one. So Colin was back in Edinburgh um, investigating two prisoners who'd escaped pretending to have COVID. And Bain and his idiot mate were in New York trying to get home. So it was like there were parallel stories going on, but it was kind of, the, neither of them was a, was the villain, if you know what okay, I mean. Okay. Although my long-term readers might disagree that Bain isn't the villain. <laughs> um, but the, and the only times I've written sort of from the point of view of a killer in those sort of books is just right at the start. There's like a sort of stinger you'd have before the credits in a TV show or a film yes. where there's a, a murder and it's like you're showing it from the point of view of the killer or you're showing it from the victim or someone who discovered the body, that kind of thing. Um, those are always quite good. There's um, the books I set, uh, wrote set in um, Seattle, which are about an FBI agent abduct- uh, you know, investigating uh, child abductions. They were they're very different so they're much more thrillers than a police procedural so the, when it you know it's you can the, the first chapter is the for the first book was the abductor abducting the children and okay um you start to you know so like you start off he's the villain and then another one another point of view character was the father who was a senator and then the third point of view is the fbi agent who's investigating but then obviously trying to it switches, flips around so that, you know, you can start to understand why someone abduct children because it's the most, you know, they're so desperate and there's it's the only language that the person would understand. And it's, you know, the, the you sort of see the motivation in a more grey area, I suppose. Maybe not that, you know, child abduction is obviously not something that is ever acceptable, but you can see why someone's driven to that point. Yeah, how they got into view. that. Yeah, yeah. And that's the sort of stuff I really liked writing. It was very different to the previous stuff I've done. Yeah. So what what would you consider the difference between being a crime book or crime investigation versus a thriller? So I think it's I think about this, and I think it's probably one like the difference between mystery and suspense. So mm. you know the police procedurals are or like a PI novel, which is much more popular in America. They're pure mystery. There's you have may have elements to suspense in there, I suppose, but the what readers are read picking these books up are is because they want to sort of see a detective going through a series of people investigating a crime and they want to be able to guess who it is and at the end they're wrong or they're right. And that's the sort of the appeal for those books is kind of an intellectual puzzle to it, and you're ri- mm. enriching it with uh, interesting characters. Uh, an interesting detective and you know unusual uh, locations and so on whereas you know like a suspense thing you'd start off showing say a cop murdering someone and then trying to cover it over where another cop's investigating the murder and you you've got a cat and mouse thing potentially going through that so so the reader like, knows there's not yeah there's not really a, a it's much a like puzzle. so if you look at um something like silence of the lambs there's a bit of an element of mystery to that but it's much more of the suspense because you see, right. you know, the serial killer executing his crimes, but most of the is Clary Starling investigating it, right, and kind of wondering more about like, is he gonna, is he gonna get, you know, kill the, <laughs> the serial killer, gonna yeah. kill the, the investigator more than yeah. anything. I could only watch the first one of that. I never watched the rest of it because it <laughs> yeah. me out so much. Yeah. Um, so how how do you come up with so many different ways of writing 
a crime book. Like you can't repeat the same thing. And you're, I mean, your readers are going to know, I'm sure that you have crossover between the Cullen series and the Vicky Dobbs. So you can't really recycle anything. Yeah, that's the thing. There's a few times when I've been aware that I've ripped myself off. Well, there's lots of murders, guys. I think yeah. <laughs> I did this in like I did this particular trick in oh god, I did that in Finchurch Five. Um, so the, there's a certain amount of having to like be on your toes that you're not just repeating yourself. But yeah, it, it, I mean, I think I've written over thirty police procedurals, and it's the yeah how do I keep them fresh and I suppose part of it is you know different locations definitely add to it um so some of the books are set in the first ones I wrote were set in um, Edinburgh but they sprawled quite a lot across lowland Scotland so there's a bit of a geographical uh, sort of variation to it um Vicky Dawes books are set in Dundee which is near where I grew up so that has a different angle to it you know there's different crimes happening in different places and the Fenchurch books are set in London which is you know a massive cosmopolitan city and there's there's just different crimes you can write about and also the characters the locate the people are very different so you know and the characters I think try to inhabit inhibit inhabit the city as much as the city inhabiting them as well but there, yeah, and then there's a point where you know I can I just get fed up of writing about a certain series, and I'm just not going to do anymore. Or you can tell from the sales numbers that, yeah, the reader this isn't doing what I expected it to do. So the readers aren't interested in it, so I'm just going to uh, not do any more in that, and and that's fine. Is that kind of why you started other series just to keep your mind fresh and yeah, kind of changing the characters and locations helps probably to come up with a new plot line. Yeah, definitely. Even writing in the same genre. I, th- I think if I had my time over again, I would, I would do, I wouldn't write so many books in the same genre and I would um, do something else just to keep my mind a bit more fresh, which is kind of what I'm doing just now. I'm writing sci-fi novels on the, on the offside, which are all set in space and Mars and stuff. So it's very different to, you know, police procedurals. And that I find in going back to, to doing a police procedure, I'm actually quite refreshed and mm. um, it doesn't feel like, you know, I've written so many back to back and it does feel quite um, mentally taxing and just you right. know, there's a sort of a, a certain level of exhaustion that you ho- I hope doesn't come into the writing. Uh, <laughs> <or the refugee. laughs> but, you know, Do I need the- stimulation or, or is my book just <laughs> bad? That's the, the ever ending question for, dear, for writing. Dear readers, this is boring to you as it is to me. Um, <laughs> okay. uh, yeah. So I think, but I think that if you're aware that you're writing something, do you just feel you're just going through the motions? It's never going to be a good book. And every time I've had that feeling, I just sort of junked it, put it aside. And mm. usually I can go back to it with a sort of a bit more of a fire in my belly once I've figured out what it is that's not clicking for me and what yeah. I need to do to 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 get it. And I think that I always like to think of when I'm say I heavily outline the reason you can, I can write so fast is that I'm very efficient. So I, I do a detailed outline and my previous publishers were astonished that my outline was basically what the book was. There's a lot of time they see an outline and it's like the book is nothing like that. <laughs> really? Okay, let's talk about your outlining because, yeah. I mean, I just finished one by a Spanish writer and I, I don't think it's translated into English, but it, so I'm realizing because 
I've read a couple crime procedurals and then like, I guess they'd be more thriller, maybe, you know, having to do more with government agents or whatever. Mm-hmm. And you have to leave so many hints in the beginning that the reader doesn't really know her hints, but kind of wonder if they're hints. And then you have to, you know, they're all, they all sort of tie up at the end. So are all of those figured out for you from the beginning before you start writing? Yeah, I would say about 80, 90%. Um, really? There. Yeah. So how long does it take you to outline? Like, do you sit and really think about the whole story? Yeah, so um, there's loads of great craft books. It's, it's usually from like screenplay writing. So things like Save the Cat, which you probably have heard. Yeah, that's a good a lot. one. Yeah, so it's it's all just goes back to Aristotle and it's how you break the story down. Yeah. So there's, there's basically finding those like beats to the story. Like so a lot of you know police procedural there's certain certain things happen to have to happen in certain order. So you can kind of get a lot of stuff kind of for free. But it's more the into the sort of the the, the second half of the book where you've got to resolve the story, you've got to then go, right, so here's all the clues that I'd weaved through. So what I find is that I'm 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 sort of not writing in a very linear way when I'm doing the outline. So I'll do like the first three or four chapters, which go right, that goes do 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 and then the last couple and there's one in the middle which is really important bit. And then it's like right, so this bit what happens over there, someone dies and then I need to sort of seed that a bit more. So I'll add little sprinkle little bits through the through the process and then then go through and have a sort of really sort of solid run at it and um, sometimes i can write an outline from start to finish that's got all that in it and other times it's it's like pulling teeth but um <laughs> i'm it, glad you know, it's not always easy because no, like <laughs> and then this, i mean the thing that you know just writing that outline it's it is an accelerator it's not necessarily the right the best thing because what i can find is you know, to use a film analogy, if you you know you've got your screenplay, which has been reverence reviewed, it got notes on it, and then you go and film it with the actors and the director, and and then they they'll pull together an assembly cut of it, and then show it to an audience or to executives or whatever, and go, yeah, no, this needs this bits of mess here, that's an absolute disaster, and the whole thing, God, you know, that can happen, and it's right. kind of like what you're doing with an outline is it's just like that screenplay part, it's a skeleton. And then you flesh it out as you write it. And you, you, that's what I do is I flesh it out. So turn, I, I, I write out that document is the same as I, from the start until the end, final thing. So there's no, I don't like sort of write in different places. Here's the outline and then I'll go and write something else over there. I, I take that outline and I turn every sentence and in that into something. Um, Interesting. Does and, your outline ever change yeah, while you're writing? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Yeah, um, it happens not every book, but but quite a lot, because it's it's just finding that I'm testing it as I go along and going. And there's, there's something really nagging at me here that I need to just step back and fix and go work out what the problems are. And sometimes you might find you're doing it, and there's a better way of expressing that idea. Or you know, it's never been too severe that I've no. I'll tell a lie because there was one where I totally changed the ending um, because I just didn't think like a white man would be able to write that so it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a race story it was about a, a teenage girl and it was like no I just I don't think I should be the person to write that story so I just junked it and changed wrote a different ending um and I feel it's, it's more true to me I think um, yeah and 
uh, you know, because that's the thing. You, you've got an idea, and you've got to make sure it's. it's I suppose partly it's your story to tell, but also, and uh, you're comfortable that you're putting your name to it, and you find it when you're writing it. There's there's a couple of stories recently which I'd written a few that were involved in sort of like um, child abuse cases, and I find that extremely hard to write about, and it takes a psychological uh, strain on on me as a writer. Especially a lot of the research, um, looking oh, at yeah. just the cases and stuff. It's absolutely disgusting, horrible stuff. But I think, you know, someone writing about crime, if you're not writing about that sort of thing, you're not expressing the world. And just to go on through, there was a couple of bits I just really wasn't comfortable about what was in the outline. It all made sense mm-hmm. story-wise and motivation-wise, right. but the actual content was just not something I wanted to write. So I just there. I just changed it. Yeah. So is outlining easier now that you've written? over 30 books yeah like, it's just another skill you, the more you do it the better you get at it the first outlines I wrote I find really difficult um but I could see the by doing it especially I think the main problem was that the first one I wrote I redrafted it and it, I'd like I think I retained about a third of it at most mm-hmm. so it was a lot of work to just change it and, and turn it into what it became so I could I, I you know I re, I, you know my background is in IT uh project you know, computer development and stuff so i really understood <laughs> the sort of the economies of of change basically i've worked in pro- I bigger projects in banks and you know it's it's easy to change something you know a design or a set of requirements that's easy to change but once you've built code and and tested it it's expensive to change change that and it's the same with, with writing a novel you know if it's a, if it's a, a sort of an idea and it's an outline easy to change that but if it's been edited <laughs> you yeah. know and it's all because it's all got stuff to hang together all these threads that you've woven in you know there's a lot of stuff you won't necessarily consciously remember as you're going through it but it's it's kind of there um yes i i think that's one of the biggest pieces to learn as a writer from going to like your first few novels to to you know continuing on as as it being your number one breadwinner i guess it's mm-hmm. like we tend to add a lot of details of things that we don't always, I guess, tie up, you know, like sometimes I think we go back to like some craft book that we've read of like, give more detail. And so you'll give detail about the neighbor who isn't ever going to show up. But the reader <laughs> then is like, who's the neighbor? Like maybe the neighbor. But why aren't they investigating the neighbor? And like not really understanding how to be maybe concise is mm-hmm. is the idea where you like you need strings almost on any novel, even romance needs like those little, you know, maybe not as many as crime, but do you find that you're much more concise if you outline then and you're not, I guess, leaving Easter eggs that aren't supposed to be there? Yeah. Yeah. Cause you, you kind of, if, if there's an Easter egg or a red, the red herring is supposed to be right, the red herring. Say, because it's yeah. like you put in a false thing. And I think in earlier books, the red herring would just be, you know, a dead trail in the, the, the police investigation that um, it kind of went, you know, went nowhere and it was just like sort of a bit just, what was that all about? Whereas right. actually what I've learned now is, is if weaving that into the overall thing. So it kind of isn't right, but it's not wrong and it can lead to the real uh, killer. So it might be the right motive or the right MO, uh, the, uh, you know, Yeah, it's like they have to learn something from it. You know, Mm -hmm. I I think we can get caught up in, oh, this is real world, though. You know, you want to make it real. So, of course, they might miss it. But in a book, to be satisfied, it's like, oh, no, they need to 
learn something from that. Yeah. Otherwise, the reader is like, why yeah. did I just read these, these Yeah, pages? and it's much more rewarding, I think, for the reader if it all sort of hangs together and you can actually sort of, they're building the picture, like Charlie Day in that um, Always Sunny uh, meme where he's got all the strings of yeah. connected up. So, you know, people, are, that's what's going on inside people's head is they're building up the picture. You know, there's the crime and there's what they're doing, here's what they're thinking and anyone time. And they've got their guess and your cop might have a different guess. But, you know. So do you not find it difficult at all to keep them guessing? Like, how many times do readers say, like, oh, that was easy? And you have to, oh, Crap, I, have um, to do it better. I think <laughs> no, I think the thing is that um, sometimes I, you want them to to guess the right per, that that oh, okay. person, um, but it's like not for the right reason. Uh, that can be a, a trick, but yeah, quite a lot of the a lot of time you really don't want someone to be able to guess. You want it to be like once they know it, it's obvious. But before then, it's it's not. Um, but the, I think I can't remember who who it is, but it's one of the old um, sort of fifties American noir writers. One of his writing tips was about the clue. So it has to, there should be a clue in every book that's like that the most eagle-eyed will be able to spot. And the, the frustration you might get as a re- writer is that people can't you know, who are very experienced readers, voracious readers, they do spot these things and they go, Oh, it was too easy to spot it. Like, yeah, because I, I want to reward you. This is my reward for you. You get it right. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, true. Yeah. Which they do that does satisfy them. That's why they read yeah, you know, crime so. all the time. I think of if it's they... too obvious. Yeah. So you have to have a ca- a bigger, big enough cast of of potential suspects this is the thing the problem with these books is you need to have so many different people doing that it's not immediately obvious and you've got to sort of throw them off the scent quite a bit so how do you as a writer keep them separate do you have like excel files where you know like you remember who the I don't know, but all these different <laughs> people. Are. Yeah, no, <laughs> so it's, you it's have just, to go back and check. Yeah, it's one thing I've started using like tools for the sci-fi stuff. So there's an app called Obsidian on the Mac. I think it's on PC as well. But it it's like your own personal Wikipedia where you can hook up all these stories. Oh, so okay. A little note file for the main character, and then yeah. it's like there's a you can link to the spaceship and you write about that, and everyone hooks together. But I've not, I need to do that from a police procedural things because. The notes are all in my head, or they're on the page, and it's and you like, keep them straight. You've yeah, never like made a then, mistake. Uh, no, that's not true. <laughs> I think I must have made mistakes, um, but nothing that, that the readers are like. Don't you remember that? Yeah, I've not had any any of that sort of stuff. And I think part of it is uh, maybe I think if you're very concrete with background details, you throw in. You know, it stays in your head. Then, then it well, no, it, um, that's when you get the inconsistencies. If it's like, oh yeah, so about oh, ten okay. years ago I did this, and okay. they go, but actually, you, you know, as, as opposed to on the, you know, the fifth of November, twenty eleven, I did that. You know, it's like, yeah. So that there's a bit more, bit of leeway. So if you had a little bit of vagueness in there, yeah. then it can become a wee bit less prone to the, the pedantic stuff the, the the things that i've got you know i've just learned to google the weirdest things so i threw i put in a comment about someone driving an 80s mini and i got an email from someone saying they didn't make me minis in the 80s <laughs> or something like that and so like it just like everything i put in is like oh, god i have to google everything and make sure i've got the right information there will always, always be that there's always, there's always going to be someone that's the thing for writers really is um there's always going to be people who pick, pick stuff apart but it doesn't mean they actually don't enjoy it that just because they've 
pick, you know, they pick out some small pedantic points. Some people will just throw a book away because there's something they disagree with. Yeah. And that's, yeah, you know, there's something you can't do about that. <laughs> there's really not. But it does get, there's strange things that come across our brains as we're writing. And you're like, well, I'll try to remember to look that up later. And sometimes it just doesn't <laughs> get done. And you're like, yeah. Yeah, did that, was that around at that time? I don't know. But that's why I would, you know, I almost find it easier to maybe go back and write from the 80s where I can just ignore all the social media. For some reason, the other day I was like, uh, he and he placed it on like his his telephone table. Remember when like we had telephones and we had a table? For them? And I was like, where did that come from? I don't no. even own a telephone. Yeah, <laughs> other than I've had a landline for about 10 years. No, but the weirdest <laughs> things will come out of your head. I think I like he pulled the menu drawer. Remember when you used to have to get the menus from the restaurants? Oh, God, just yeah. like look it up. Like, what what year do I live in? <laughs> was it that my mom was saying when she was growing up, so it'd be in the 50s and 60s. There's one telephone for the street, or a few telephones for the street, so they didn't oh, even right. have them in their houses. Like the party lines, right? I think <laughs> yeah, or not, there's, well, it was like a phone box, so you'd have to go out. You'd have the, to go. Yeah, and and like when my when my mum, because my dad, when my dad went to uh, both, they met at Edinburgh University, and my dad was from um, down in England, and my mum's from um, near Dundee, and if they want in the holidays, if they wanted to speak. It was like, right, I'll phone you on Tuesday at seven o'clock. So my mom would have to wait outside the phone box for a phone call. Um, you know, I always think nowadays it's like the kids are just on, you know, WhatsApp yeah. or Snapchat or whatever all the time. Yeah, and if, if you know, Susie from down the street is on the phone at that time, you're going to get really mad. That's funny. That's funny to try to keep all those things. But what do you think as a as a person who's kind of starting out as a crime author, do you have any advice other than probably outlining and reading in their genre that um or maybe books that you would have them read or to make the, sure that they don't they don't do the red herrings yeah um i think the the best advice is you know it's obviously focusing on what your objective for the book is if you want to be a massive seller or you're just doing it for love you know that knowing that up front is good and and if it's like you're just expressing your opinion your something about you then then that's fine just write what you want and don't you know just as long as you're expressing everything you want that's great but if you're doing it for to become a job which I think quite a lot of writers younger younger writers do I think a lot of retired people are just doing it just to write a book mm-hmm. um but like if you're doing it that you want this to be your day job then I think it's about that if a book doesn't sell then you know there's, there's, it's about the reasons for that being able to identify that and if, if that's down to like the market some mess in marketing that something didn't happen and you didn't get this or that then understanding that has been different from the fact that the book was a complete mismatch for a market so if you write something about you know a cat detective who's hunting down dogs or whatever it's not going to sell huge amounts to uh, adult readers and you know if you're writing it in a gritty noir style it's you know it maybe it maybe is a massive seller who knows but you know if you're writing something that's very cliched as well it's not going to sell but it's about finding something you love you mm. know looking at what's popular what's sold what's big and going what's my take on that what's my how do I make that about there's something I I can produce I'm happy to produce something I love because you know writing it is a 
psychologically a very, you know, a very difficult business um, publishing. I don't think people kind of on the outside can appreciate that. It's not just sitting down and writing, you know, it's all the other stuff, all the disappointment, all and the hope and the success. Those are, right. are quite difficult to to contend with as well. When you sold, you know, lots and lots of books, it, it does things to your head that you don't quite expect. And, you know, you come addicted to the certain levels of success and then subsequent failures or prior failures are difficult to contend with as well. Um, rejection, there's lots and lots of rejection. You know, if you want to be a writer, you've got to be psychologically tough. And That's and, so true. Yeah, and, and the, the big thing is, I think you asked earlier about where I learn most is I think the most learning I've done is through editors. So I've worked mm. with a lot of editors, probably about 20 in total. And you learn something different from working with each one, and the you know they should make you more confident. It, you know the thing with editing is a lot of it, uh, unless it's things like grammar and syntax and all that. Those are sort of um, hard hard rules, but a lot of the um, editing stuff, particularly development side of it, that's their opinion. But if you if you've got the right editor who's a uh, you know and you should who's an experienced professional then that you know you can rely on their opinion and follow what what they say um with some from faith and you know you get to the point where if you work with an editor for three or four books you should be getting fewer and fewer corrections or notes right. because you're kind of understanding how they think and there's certain bits of of their um process has, has gone into your head and you can sort of second guess it but you've always got a little version of them on your shoulder whispering in your ear it's not to say that they're writing the book, but it's that you're sort of removing, you're writing in a different way, in a better way that stops the edits. I think that's what I would say is that you're eliminating edits. Like, it's kind of like a bug in a computer program. It's it's something that, you know, you're going to have to fix. So you're kind of removing them up front because you've edited a book before with them and you understand why that you, yeah. cre- you created that problem because you, you say introduced too many characters and it confused them. Or, right. you know, you had three characters whose names all began with C in the same scene. So that confuses people as well. So you right. just write those little things like that. But it's also big things like... Yeah, like the yeah. development. Yeah. Or I could figure it out too quickly. Is that what you yeah. want? Or, it's too yeah, obvious. I think especially indie writers these days, for some reason, we think that we have to do everything alone. And we forget mm-hmm. that, you know, you should be able to have somebody who's reading it from a reader's point of view let you know what the reader is going to see, you know, and, and like you said, it's not that the editor is writing the book at all. They're just giving you feedback that you might not be able to see because Mm -hmm. you're so close. I mean, it lives in our head. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. We're very close to these stories. I think that's really good advice. Yeah. I think it's interesting. The the indie thing as well, because I think a lot of indie um, writers who've never, have never been, traditionally published they don't see that, that way of doing things they don't appreciate mm-hmm. that whereas a lot of the particularly over this side of the fence i can see sort of the the, the 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 writers who've done really well like mark dawson or whatever have been previously um traditionally published so they've yeah. kind of been edited so they understand the importance of the editing whereas if you you know like if you don't i didn't understand the editing when i started it and i've gone through the traditional publishing pipeline a few times in some books and you can see the absolute benefit of it going through it. It's painful, but you do go through it. But I think right. it's that sort of either ignorance that I don't, I don't know if I need to do it. What is the thing? It's just proof, proofing or whatever. But actually, 
seeing that it's out there that books should get edited. But the the the, the flip side of being an, an indie author is that you are in hundred percent control of who you work with as well. Mm-hmm. It's just when they want to work with you, but you know you can work with a great editor, and you can rather than just someone who your publisher has shoved at you just because they've got to get the book edited. You can work with a, with really good editors that you get on with really well that you know know their stuff and improve your books by working on it. I think that's a really yeah. good um, advantage India authors have got. Yeah, that's true, and really, you know, the investment that has to go into it will guarantee more more sales in the end you know which is all what we all want (laughs) especially if we're doing it can you let us know um we're at the middle of february when this goes out what is coming out you have a book called lost cause can you tell us a little bit about it yeah so um there's a book um set in the scottish highlands which is a very mysterious and spooky place it's about an author who's in a bit of financial trouble and his not published a book for five years and sent his teenage or his student up there to do some invest some research for him uh and she goes missing so he has to go up there with his ex-wife who's a cop to hunt his ex-wife yeah that's fun um so that's uh, on the first time it's called boss cause and it's a standalone one so i'm aware that a lot of my books there's quite a heavy continuity between them and stuff so having something that's not police procedural and is set on it there's only one the only one is going to be much easier for people to get into okay uh, yeah there's quite a few others in different series coming in the next yeah few you have as well. <laughs> you have quite a few series and i'll put the links to your website in the show notes because you have like how you read them in order i love this how <laughs> authors of series have to have like this whole all these pages of if you've read this one and this one you can't read that one yet <laughs> you guys have yeah, this it, whole map I mean, that's the thing this was the other side of the indie thing is that we we can produce there's no limit to how many books we can produce other than how many hours a day you can put into it so you know you can i've written you know like 30 books in like you know 10 years and um, right. so that's quite a lot that's like a you know someone's lifetime and I've done it in 10 years because yes. I, I don't have I'm not mer- mercy to the being able to put one book out a year so the yes. there's such a messy com- uh, continuity there yes but the flip <laughs> side is that the readers expect you to put out <laughs> you know, know. more than one book a year so yeah. it is a bit of a catch-22 <laughs> um, well thank you so much Ed sure. it was wonderful to to listen to you about crime writing police procedurals it's a, that's a tongue twister. That's not good. Say that. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. Cool. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're still listening. Since you are, could you do me a favor and head over to the app that you're listening to this episode on and hit the subscribe button and then rate and review the show? It would really help the Pencils and Lipstick podcast get out into the world. And if you're enjoying the podcast, well, then there might be more people out there who would enjoy it as well. If you want to find out more about me, you can head over to catcaldwell.com. I have my story over there, my books, my interactive journals, my one-on-one coaching information, and information on my creative writing community membership group. 
If you're looking to write a book or you are a writer and you just want to find out more about how to write, how to publish, how to format, how to market, and all the things that go into being an author these days, check out the membership group. There is a 14 free day trial that you can try it out, get into the masterminds, find out all the goodies that we are talking about in the group. I would love to see you there.